My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm Shane. I get the privilege of being on the pastoral team here on a part-time basis. I have a couple of different hats that I wear. The one hat is I help, I guess, provide pastoral oversight to our finances. And I just help our staff team be a good stewards of the, of the money that God gives us through your generosity. And another role, another hat that I wear is one of pastoral counseling, just especially walking alongside people going through some dark seasons, some, some facing some hardships, and especially when it seems like God is absent. And, and it's just a great joy to walk into what I would think, what I would consider holy ground in those moments. And in fact, if that's where you are this morning and just entering into a season or in the middle of a season where you're just kind of wondering what, what way's up and what way's down, and I'd love to just to, to walk alongside you a little bit. And so you can use that connect card that Aaron mentioned earlier, uh, just right on there. I'd like to meet with Pastor Shane. Make sure your contact information's on there, and that will get to me, and I'll follow up with you. I also get the, occasionally to be a part of the teaching team here. Glad to, for, to Pastor James for this privilege and honor to do that, especially as we continue on in this Doing Good series where we've been going through the gospel account uh, written by Mark, you know, one of the four gospel stories that we have around Jesus. And in particular, we're looking at where Jesus was interacting with people and doing good, bringing, bringing good into their lives. And this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, uh, where Jesus heals a blind man. And so if you want to start turning there in your Bibles, we'll get there in a couple of minutes. But before we do, I want to set the stage by, by asking for a show of hands, and I may be dating myself in this reference, but how many of you remember Magic Eye Graphics? You remember those? About, about 20 years ago, they were all over the place, right? Every gift shop, every store, you know, you couldn't escape them. They're still well on the internet and everything like that. But if you're not familiar with Magic Eye Graphics, you know, the idea behind that is what looks like just a, a regular color, you know, just a graphic of some kind, actually contains a hidden image, and the instructions are, if you kind of zero in onto the center and then let your eyes go a little unfocused and stare for a little while, a 3D image actually pops out. Now, I'm not sure if this will work on the big screens, uh, but you give it a try. And, and if you look at it, maybe you'll see there's actually a shark hidden in that picture. Pretty crazy, right? The reason I wanted to bring that up is because it's fascinating with Magic Eye is that you can look at this graphic, you can consider it beautiful, you maybe even like it, the coloring so much that it would, that would fit in your home, and so you buy it and you put it on the wall, and you can enjoy this graphic and completely miss what's going on in it. And the reason I wanted to highlight that is because that happened when Jesus walked this earth. That happens with Jesus today. People, people look at him and see him for some, as something wonderful and yet completely miss who he actually is. 
And in that, that is what's front and center in our story today. There's some people seeing Jesus and yet missing who he really is. And so that's where I'm going to pick up the story. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to begin reading in verse 22. It says, When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes, that sounds pleasant, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? And when the man looked around, he said, yes, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. What a fascinating story. So wait a minute. You're telling me that Jesus tried to heal a blind man, and it didn't take the first time? What, did he have a power malfunction of some kind? No, didn't eat a hearty breakfast that morning and lost a little oomph in his healing powers? Or perhaps he, tried, he just used the wrong method. Oh, that's right. Spitting doesn't work on this kind of blindness because I used mud in that last one. What's going on in this story? I find that quite fascinating. And, and you dig into it and you take a look at those who've studied the, this passage. You come up with a variety of different opinions about what's going on. And, and, you know, just to be honest, we don't really know for sure. But there's many that have concluded, and I would agree with, that, that Jesus could have healed this man on the first try but he had something also important he wanted to accomplish in addition to healing him. And, and what I believe is that, is that he actually wanted to create a living metaphor. A, a living metaphor that, that his disciples would look back on decades later and would remember, hey, do you guys, you guys remember when Jesus didn't heal that guy the first time? Wasn't that great? And Oh yeah, you remember what Jesus taught us about that? If you think that's a little strange, I actually think we do this. Especially as parents, we do this, where you, where you create a story or a setting of some kind because you want your kids to remember a lesson out of it. My, my parents did this. In fact, my dad took it to an extreme. When I, was in an ele- when I was in elementary school, my dad wanted his kids to experience farm life. He didn't want us to read about it in a book. You know, he wanted us to experience it. So this guy who grew up in the heart of urban Seattle, who had never lived on a farm, never lived near a farm, never worked on a farm, had no idea how a farm operates, bought a 160-acre working farm in the middle of nowhere, southeastern Minnesota. (laughs) So I lived it. And I'll tell you what, what one thing I gained out of that, there's a lot of great memories there, a lot of not-so-great memories, but but what I gained out of there was, you you don't realize how many metaphors we use in cultural conversation that are rooted in the farm, even though we haven't, many of us have never lived there. Take, for example, he's just running around like a chicken with his head cut off. That's a real thing. (laughs) You know, we had this hen house with a bunch of egg-laying hens, and we had farm-fresh eggs every morning, which was pretty cool. One day, my dad gets a wild hair. We ought to try to butcher one of them. Are you getting a picture of my dad here? (laughs) It's accurate. And so, so we get out a log out of the wood pile and put it in the middle of the yard, and he, gra- you know, and he grabs the axe, and he grabs the chicken by the... Can I talk about this in church? Too late. And he takes it, and he whacks at it, and I tell you, the chicken runs around with the head cut off. I mean, he didn't know you have to hang on to the feet. There's no YouTube videos for us to look at it, so we just figured it out. But I have a memory of the, the chicken running around the yard with its head cut off, and for an elementary school boy, that was pretty cool. <laughs> 
maybe a little more innocuous example. Uh, make hay while the sun shines. We had, we had acres and acres of hay, and that was, as an elementary school boy, I learned to hate haying season. Oh, man, talk about how much work, and it was long hours, and it was sweaty. Southeastern Minnesota, very hot and humid, and just sticks to you, and yeah. I drive out in Helvetia during haying season, and I start to get, you know, flashbacks. <laughs> but I tell you, what, what they make hay while the sun shines. When you cut the hay, when it's time for haying season, the hay has to dry, and, and it can't get wet, you got to get that thing, you got to get it bailed and put in the barn before it gets wet. So if the sun's shining, it doesn't matter what else you had planned, you're going to be making hay. You got to make hay while the sun shines. I lived that. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Lived that. Oh, you'll be waiting until the cows come home. Lived that. That's a tough road, road to hoe. Lived that. My mom had about an acre garden and I was out there with the weeds. Anyway, so living metaphors. I lived that. Jesus would have lived living metaphors. He would have been taught as a first century rabbi, he would have been taught through living metaphors. In fact, he would have been, he would have been studying intently with the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament in our Bible today. And, and they're full of living metaphors. Hosea, one of the minor prophets, the entire thing is built on a living metaphor. Hosea, instructed by God, go marry Gomer, who was a prostitute, to illustrate God's relationship to the nation of Israel and how they were prostituting themselves to other gods. Ezekiel is one living metaphor after another, some really kind of strange ones. Uh, but again, God teaching to the nation of Israel through living metaphor. That's what I believe is going on here. Jesus, yes, he, in addition to healing the man, he had, com he had compassion on him, he healed him. The man was freed from blindness. In addition to that, Jesus created a living metaphor for his disciples to learn from. So then the question is, what was the lesson that he wanted them to learn? Well, we know that by just, just merely reading on. So in verse 27, we see this. So Jesus and disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he said, Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say you are one of the other prophets. Isn't that fascinating? People encountered Jesus but were blind to who he actually was. Earlier in chapter 8, there's a, a story Mark tells about thousands of people coming to Jesus they knew something special was going on. And they encountered a man who was compassionate and kind and generous and who taught with great wisdom and worked miracles. They knew something special was going on. They knew he was unique. But they were blind to who he actually was. So when asked, oh yeah, he's, like, he's John the Baptist. You know, that other guy's been running around the desert doing great things. Or he was Elijah, the one who was promised at one time was going to come back. Or he was just one of the prophets because the prophets were their heroes and they were the ones that did amazing things. Blind to who he actually was. The same is true today. I mean, if you interact with neighbors or coworkers and you ask them about Jesus, more likely than not, they'll, they'll, they'll have him, hold him in high regard. He's a great man. He was a great teacher. He was a great religious leader, you know, right up there with Muhammad and Buddha and Krishna and the like. They know there's something special and yet completely blind to who he actually was. Now, as our story continues, we, end, we, we see that our, the disciples, they saw him, they saw them more than a mere prophet. You know, we see this in verse 29. So then he asked them, the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who speaks up, he's always the one speaking up, right? You are the Messiah. Or your Bible may say, you are the Christ. 
When we refer to Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name. It actually means the anointed one. Christ was the Greek, that was the same word as the Messiah, which was in the Hebrew, and they meant an anointed one or the chosen one. You are the chosen one. And what it's alluding to there, Messiah was this long-promised figure in the Old Testament, you know, Jewish scriptures, that promised that one day this powerful figure was going to appear and is going to restore nation of Israel to their rightful place and they were going to rule over the world. In places like in Daniel chapter 7, where we see this. Daniel was one of the prophets and he says, I got my vision, it was a prophetic vision, continued that night. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into His presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty. Authority and honor and sovereignty as a, as a ruler over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey Him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. That's a messianic or a Messiah prophecy. So when the disciples looked at Jesus, this is who they saw. They saw this promised one but they didn't see him clearly. When they looked at Jesus, they saw the Messiah, a caricature of the Messiah rather than the real Messiah because their idea of Messiah was shaped by cultural expectations. The people during this time were under the rule of Rome and they lived an oppressed life and so their idea of Messiah was this warrior person who's going to come and who's going to you know, kick some Roman butt and remove the oppression and restore Israel to its rightful place and we're going to rule over the, over the world. Isn't that what it says? Now interestingly, Jesus doesn't deny that he's Messiah. He accepts the title. What comes next is he, first of all, it says a strange command to keep it quiet, which is interesting. And then he goes on to say this. He says, then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, notice that reference. So that was one of the titles Jesus used for himself, Son of Man. It comes from Daniel 7. So he's accepting this place, this assignment, if you will, as a Messiah. This is what Messiah is going to do. Suffer many terrible things be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and he will be killed, but three days later would rise from the dead. This is the first time in Mark when Jesus alludes to what's going to come next. It happens two or three more times in the next couple of chapters. So Jesus is preparing the way. This is what Messiah is going to do. But you can imagine these disciples who are expecting this warrior king, their reaction. You picture them standing around, like just mouths agape, maybe scratching their heads, going, uh, excuse me? wait a minute, you're agreeing you're Messiah and this is what you're going to do? Now wait a minute, wait a minute. So they're all thinking it, but Peter's the one that speaks up. Peter's always the one that speaks up, often with tragic results, right? As we see that comes next. This is how Jesus, so Jesus responds. He says he was talking about this openly with his disciples. Peter took him aside, and I just get a kick out of this. He took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Peter, 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 Peter. So you know he's the Messiah. You, you were in that boat. Remember that crossed the, the, the Sea of Galilee and the storm came and Jesus quieted the storm and everybody was marveling. Man, he even has authority over the, over the weather and all that. He knows all that and yet he pulls him aside and reprimands. No, 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 Jesus, you got this Messiah thing wrong. Let me, let me help you with that. Yeah, Peter. But Jesus turned around and looked at all of his disciples. Okay, so he knew, even though Peter was the one speaking up, he knew this was, this was in all of their minds. And he reprimanded Peter 
Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. They are seeing the Messiah from a human point of view, what, what Messiah ought to be, not from God's point of view. That was, that was the tension that they faced. That's what Peter was speaking into. Now, it's easy to pick on Peter, but at least he lived boldly. All of the disciples, they were looking for a Messiah who would save them the way they wanted to be saved. And I want to repeat that. They were, the, Messiah, the, the, the disciples were looking for a Messiah who would save them the way they want to be saved. And before we judge these disciples, we need to take a good look in the mirror. Because many, if not most of us in this room, we call ourselves Christians. Maybe, maybe you do so because you grew up going to church. Or maybe at some point in time you prayed a prayer or you were baptized into the church. And, and now you do these Christian type things like you, you come on Sunday mornings and you, and you worship. Or you maybe put a little money in the offering basket. Or you, or, or you tr- volunteer occasionally. Or, and you pray over meals and, and when you need God's help. And yet, and I don't want to speak directly here. I'm going to risk that. And yet, still don't see Jesus clearly. You still see Jesus kind of like a tree walking around. Because your idea of Messiah is somebody who will rescue you and save you the way you want to be saved. Who will rescue you and save you into the life you want to live. Seeing things from man's perspective, human perspective, rather than from God's perspective. And I just want to draw specific attention to the fact that Jesus spoke the harshest words recorded of him to his best friend and the future leader of his church. The one he said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Because he knew that day Peter faced the greatest danger every disciple of Jesus faces. Not only in that day, but in this day. The greatest danger you and I face if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus. That is trying to make Jesus into our image rather than being formed into his image. My friends, we do this constantly. We try to form Jesus into our image, what we think Messiah ought to be, rather than being formed into his image. And what comes next to the story is Jesus' clear definition of what it means to follow him as a disciple, to be formed into his image. If if you want that that second-touch healing and see Jesus for who he really is, this is what it looks like. Jesus makes it really clear. Then calling the crowd to join in the disciples, he says, kind of like, okay, everybody, draw in close here. Get in really close and tight because I'm going to give you the secret. I'm going to give you this is what it means to see me clearly and to follow me as Messiah, as the promised one. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news or the gospel, that's what that means, you will save it. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And my friends, following Jesus will cost you everything. And will give you more than you can imagine. It will cost you everything. And it will give you more than you can imagine. When you follow Jesus for who he really is, you see him clearly, it's going to lead you down a road of of costly self-sacrifice. In fact, you could sum up the gospel this way. It means that the call of the gospel will always be, he's going to call you to die in order to live. That's what Jesus did. 
He died to be resurrected into a new life. If we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to call us to die in order to live. The challenge is, is when we, when we feel, when we hear that call from Jesus in small ways and in big ways, all, at first, all we see is die. Right? That's the call. It's, it's going to call you to die to dreams, die to control, die, die to, 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 uh, to think, having things work out the way you want them to. It's going to die to comfort. You're going to die to safety. You're going to die to familiarity. You're going to die. And that doesn't sound very motivating. But the power of the gospel is that death isn't the end of the story. Death is a doorway into, a, into an abundant life, into a resurrected life. That's the power of the gospel. So yes, the gospel will always, always, always call you to die. You can't get over it. You can't get under it. You can't get around it. You can't avoid it. You have to go through it. And here's the wonder of it. When you go through the death with Jesus, there's a resurrected life on the other side. The one who designed the universe, who created the universe, who right now is holding the very molecules of your body together, who knows you better than you know yourself, has a life in store for you on the other side. And when you're on the other side, the death becomes very small because the life from this creator is there for you. That's the power of the gospel. That is the invitation of the gospel, to die so that you may live. Eugene Peterson, who was a great pastor and theologian and poet, you may know him as the one who, who wrote the paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. He sadly died this week, and he's going to be greatly missed. I like how he put this, though. This is how he put this in his book called The Pastor. He said, resurrection does not have to do exclusively with what happens after we are buried and cremated. We practice, I love that, we practice our death by giving up our will to live on our own terms. Like Jesus says, only in that relinquishment or that renunciation to really important words are we able to practice resurrection. Did you know that we have that opportunity in this life? We practice our death, dying to our own way, and we practice resurrection by living the Jesus way. So it's constant. This isn't a one-time-and-get-it-over-with kind of thing. It's a constant call of discipleship. Last year, about this time, I was faced with a rather large die-to-live moment. As some of you may know, I, I served as a pastor here in the Hillsborough area for 10 years at another church. Until this time last year when we merged that congregation into another local congregation. Now, we didn't do that because we were failing, we actually were doing well in a number of ways, having a great impact in, the, in our community and even across the world. We did that because we saw more gospel potential in combining efforts than we did on continuing on our own. And, and make no mistake, this was a blow to our pride as a leadership team. Blow to our American desire to, to do it, you know, to succeed and to do it well and to have your own way. And, but it was a good decision, mainly through the lens of stewardship. Because in our high-rent city, leasing worship space, this takes a lot of room. Well, that's ex very expensive. And we, we, came to, we, we saw that we were now going to have to spend so much on worship space that we would not be able to have the community impact, the kingdom impact around us that we felt called to be as a church. And so as we started a conversation with a like-minded church going after a lot of the same things, we came to the conclusion that we would be better together than we would be on our own. 
But this brought a die moment for me because a new combined church didn't need two lead pastors. And so before we made the decision, we knew it would cost me my job. And I was on the team making this decision. It was a die moment. Specifically because, if, if for no other reason, uh, because my youngest was graduating, would be soon graduating from high school, and we would have four kids in college. And it also brought me a paradox because I, I had no doubt that God had called me, was still calling me to pastor in the Hillsboro area. And yet he was also now calling me to relinquish my role as a pastor. So would I die to how I thought my story should go? And would I trust in God's provision? That was the question. And I tell you, so from this point, this last year, and now coming to, to teach this message brought me really to reflect on it as well. It's been a wild ride. We've seen God provide in some pretty cool ways. Also went through some, a, you know, a season of unemployment. I wouldn't, if you're in the middle of that, I, I'm, I, I, I pray for you because I wouldn't want to wish that on anybody. Uh, through what was a casual conversation with Pastor James, he's been a good friend for a long time, you know, where he's just helping me, you know, walk through that. And then at one point, he just kind of had that Pastor James moment where he kind of goes, hmm, you know, and he has these things that he's working out, right? And he says, I wonder if, if this, because he knew I was pursuing, going to pursue full-time uh, a, a degree at, at Western Seminary to, to pursue a master's in counseling, to become a licensed counselor. And, and yet I needed part-time work. And so he says, maybe we can find a way to make that work here at Sunrise. And, and, and he did, and, and I've been here about six months. And, and I find it fascinating, almost a year to the day, that I'm still pastoring in Hillsboro at a great church. Now, I don't know where this route is going, but I'll tell you one thing. I am fully confident in the one that I'm following. So my friends, where are you this morning? In particular, where do you sense God calling you to die and yet you're clinging to something because it seems too significant to give up? Where is God calling you to die, to relinquish, so that you could live? Now, there's a couple of hundred people in here. I don't know your stories. Uh, I, all I know is that if you've given your life to Jesus, his spirit comes and lives inside you and is going to be constantly wooing you and calling you toward Jesus, which means to call you to die in order to live. But I do know as a church that we have some common themes of just operating as a, as a part of Sunrise Church. And so I just listed out some things of what this might look like. Uh, first of all, there may be some of you here, you've been around the edges of the church, around the edges of following Jesus, but like the crowds in Jesus' day, you've been blind to who he really is. You need to declare Jesus as Lord, as Messiah, as Savior. Admit you can't save yourself. I need help. God, I believe you exist. Jesus, I believe you came. You died for my sins. I receive your death in place of mine, and I receive the free gift of life in your name. That is the, that is the gospel. We enter in, and when we say that, we become a part of the family of God. Maybe that's where you are this morning. And if that's where you are, I would just say, take the, the Connect card that we talked about earlier and write on there. I want to make, I want to follow Jesus. Or maybe you still have, you have questions about that. And just write that, I just have, I'd like to talk to somebody. And if you put your name on there and your contact information, I guarantee you somebody who loves Jesus will follow up and help you with your next steps. The second one here, make corporate worship your weekend priority. Those that, we, just, we have the data in America right now, especially in suburban America, those that say I regularly attend on Sunday morning attend maybe once every four to six weeks. 
My friends, what we do here is the most formational thing. If you want to be formed into the image of Christ, this is the most important thing you can do, corporate worship. That and reading your Bible every day. I mean, we have the statistics. We know that. We know that to be true. And yet, on the weekends right now in America, we have so many other options, especially in the Pacific Northwest, right? And it's hard to make this a priority. And every, t- and, and every time we walk in this room, something magical doesn't always happen. And so we can get bored with it and think, oh, I don't need to go there again. Wasn't I just there last week? This is the most important thing we can do. So to make it a priority, but that's going to require dying to other things for this, for, for each time. Serving on a volunteer team, taking it a step further. Maybe you come here and you have a consumer mindset. I come, I get, I get my thing, I get my fix, I get my, 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 my jolt of adrenaline, and then, I, and then I can make it through another week. And that, that's good, and I'm glad. This is not a consumer experience. This is a worship experience. It involves giving and receiving. It takes anywhere from 50 to 100 people on a weekend to, to do what we do here. You see people walking around with the name tags. They're serving. They're volunteering. They're not getting paid for that. They're getting the joy of serving. And so if you're not a part of a team on a weekend, let's make that happen. But it's going to require you to die to your idea that this is, I just come and receive. You have a serve card in front of you in the chair back, and I would just invite you to fill that out. There's a number of different options there. You can check a couple. You're not signing your life away. You're not, you know, for the next 10 years. This isn't something you have to do every weekend, okay? There's just a find a place. If we all do this, then we share in it. And and when you sign it up there, I guarantee you one of a a fabulous volunteer leader will will come alongside you and help you find your fit. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe you need to start tithing. Oh, this is a good one. Tithing, which means I get my paycheck and I give the first 10% to God through the church. The first 10%. Not whatever's left over at the end of the month. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I can barely make it through the month as it is. I'm, I'm not living on 100% of my income. I'm living on 105% of my income because I'm a good American. That's what we Americans do. No, to give the first 10% and to face that death and that because I don't know how I'm going to make it to the end of the month. I don't know how I'm going to be able to get after the things that I want to get after. How do I do that, God? Yeah, by relinquishing and then trusting and realizing God has resources you don't have a clue about. And the only way to unlock them is to give it first, to die so that you can live. Maybe you need to lead a community group. Maybe you've been a part of a community, you know, a small group for a while around here. You know the value of it, but the thought of leading one, oh, wait a minute, you know, uh, I don't have time for that, or, or I don't know, my home's not big enough, or I'm an introvert and I can't handle that, or I've never led anything before, and yeah, I know. But there's a, there's a way to unlock and provide community for others that you need to step into. As you leave today, you need to, before you head out the far doors, you need to take a quick left and another left and, and talk to Lene and, and get a conversation started about what that might look like. Uh, you need to invest relationally in your neighbors. You know, those ones you, you, you drive past and do the American thing where the garage door goes up and the car goes in and the garage door goes down and I'm in my oasis and leave me alone. Just turn on the Netflix. Actually, get to know my neighbors especially that, that, that one next door that's of a, of a different race or a different religion or who doesn't take care of their fence the way I like it or doesn't trim their hedges. and Yeah, that one. It's a little uncomfortable. Yeah, you've got to die to my idea for comfort and step into the unknown of going across a barrier, across culture maybe. Give up an addiction. Oh my goodness, we are an addicted nation. We have so many substances and activities we can give our lives to and we think we're going to get life out of it, but my friends, it is death. It is nothing but idolatry. It's going to suck the life right out of us. We need to give that up. On Thursday evenings around here, there's a group of courageous folks who are doing that together. Maybe, uh, maybe you need to spend that time. 
cut back on hours devoted to work. I'm going to step on some toes. I'm devoted to work, devote more time to family and community. We are an overworking nation in so many ways. Not because we have to, but because we're afraid. We're afraid if I don't do that extra project, if I don't take that extra, you know, that, that extra client, if I don't take that extra, t- extra job, I won't have enough money, or somebody's going to come in and take my job, and so I've got, I can't let that something be undone. I need to put in that extra hour, to put in that extra night, or that extra night. It's one reason we're not here on Sunday mornings is because we're working or pushing all of the activities that we can't fit into our busy week, like kids' sports, and doing them on Sunday mornings. Am I stepping on enough toes? Life is not found in work only. It's important, yes. But we need to have something left over for the rest of life. And then lastly, I just want to highlight that within just a little over a month, we're going to open up our SOS shelter to our homeless friends as the days get shorter and colder and wetter to provide a safe place for them to come and to experience a warm meal and a place to sleep. My friends, that's a way that we extend hospitality, that we live out our heartbeat to serve the least and the last and the lost. It's not just going to happen. It's us serving together. And then there's the blank. Because again, I don't know your story. All I know is it's going to involve relinquishing something that seems too important in order to gain from the God of the universe something beyond our imagination. As, as you know, through this series, we've been inviting up you know, somebody from among yous uh, to, to come up here and share their faith story. And I, and I want to invite up today here Billy Feldman up on stage. Uh, so you can welcome him. Uh, actually, yeah. So, actually, Billy's up here on stage quite a lot. It's just we don't usually let him out of his cage. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> He's our regular drummer here on Sunday mornings. And Thank yeah, you. likes to keep... During the week, he's a licensed counselor as well, and so that's actually how we've gotten to know each other a little bit, because he's further down a path that I'm, that I'm heading down. And, but I've just been loved getting to know him, because in the last several years especially, he's been living kind of this, this idea of a second touch kind of engagement with the gospel, and so I wanted you to, to hear from yeah, Billy. Yeah, so thank you. Like you said, it's a little bit different for me being up front talking to people than being in my nice little safe little realm back here in my little drum world, but... Yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the second touch uh, mentality. So, um, like you said, I've been a counselor for a while. I'm a licensed counselor, and I also have my CEDC, which is a addictions counselor thing. And, and so uh, I've been really blessed to have multiple experiences uh, from community health all the way up to private practice where I'm at now. And, but I haven't always been a counselor. I was a, I was a teenage dad. I've worked pretty much every job you can think of uh, trying to raise children when I was a, a child. And, and I only bring that up just to kind of give some context to kind of where my life has been pretty much till recently um, in context of my spiritual walk, I, I very much would say very much that convenient Christian, that compartmentalized Christian, that I was really good at God. Thank you. I know you're there, but there's a lot of details in this, and i got to work this out. Or, or once in a while, i throw him a bone. Hey, thanks. Thanks for helping me out with that, or, or if the pressure was um, getting too high. But always very convenient, very, very reserved. And, and so I would say probably, I don't know, about a year and a half ago, um, really started some experiencing some burnout at my job, and, and that's pretty normal. I mean, you're in people's stuff all the time. Um, but I was starting to get to a point where I noticed seeing this burnout sticking around. The things I normally do aren't working, and especially after I had some conversations with really close peers of mine and loved ones like, hey, you know, what's, what's going on? And so I really started considering, man, I need to do something about this. So I really started to move forward and, like, wanted to seek some help. And when I, when I say help, it's my lens, counseling and 
and realm. And don't get me wrong, please, I believe in counseling. I, I do it for a living. I've seen it do amazing, amazing things. But for some reason, when I was kept ready to move forward, it was a very distinct no. This is not the route I want you to take. You need to do this differently. You need to do this my way. You need to do this my way. And I'm like, what the heck? And so, but I wish I could tell you I had some aha moment. That's not how my hard head works. My God knows me very well. And he presses things and themes with me. So it just kept me like conversations or, or things I would see on TV just kept affirming my way. It's my will, my way, my way. Especially when me healing uh, with people. And so he really hit that and really was urging that from multiple angles. I finally got to that point, fine. God, your will, your surrender. I, I'm very much still in this process, so I don't want to act like, I, ooh, I got this together. But I'm very much in this. But what I will say is when I made that surrender, when I made that shift, I would say very much that's where that second touch started coming. And, and in context of, of just talking about, like, counseling, um, the job I had private, just recently went to private practice, but I was in community mental health for a long time. And I would say maybe 10% of people, we would talk about spirituality, if that. By the time I left, 60 70% profound conversations about spirituality. I just started my own practice recently. I would say 80% of the people come my way because they heard I was a Christian. I didn't advertise I was a Christian counselor. You see, people come in my way. Uh, even just to being in the church, doing more conferences and things, when I really kept those worlds separate, I really like to keep it separate, you know, convenient for me. So, so basically, I'm just trying to just connect with the, with the, the uh, message today that very much live that first touch vibe and, and world, especially when I'm in, in people's worlds and, and interacting with them. But once I made that decision to surrender, very much still in it, that's where that vision, like you're saying, that clarity of how truly magnificent our God is and how he wants to work and use us as tools, it's pretty amazing. So, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you, Billy. Thank you. I mean, listening to his story, I'm reminded once again, and I'd like to close with some words uh, that were written in a journal, private journal uh, in the mid-20th century by a man who was leaving the comforts of, the, of New England to move down to South America to take the gospel to a tribe of people who had never heard of him and who lost his, physically died, who lost his life. They killed him as he was trying to bring the gospel to him. His name, you may know him, his name was Jim Elliott. And he wrote these words because people were asking, why would you do such a thing? And, and he, this is what he was telling them, and this is what he wrote in his journal. I'm going to put these up here and close with these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the gospel. Would you pray with me? And so, Jesus, believing you are real, and not only... Not only just from the history books, but you are real right now. You are present. You promise your presence through your spirit to be with us. So would you take any words that have been spoken this, this morning that are not of you and just purge them from our minds? And would you take those words that are of you and sink them deep into our hearts? Maybe we trust so that we would have the courage to step into these places of death, these places of relinquishing our way in order to reach out and embrace your way, believing that you have life, you have abundant life ready for us. And so whatever these steps may be, Jesus, would you give us the courage to trust you and to step into them, and, and we trust them to you. We believe that in the name of the gospel, in the name of Jesus, amen.